0: William Chaucer said, Familiarity breeds contempt. I think what he meant by that is, The more you get to know someone, Is the less you tend to like them. Obviously, he was a bit cynical. Good morning, my name is Dean Delfos. As Mike said, I I get the privilege of being one of the pastors at Country Bible Church um, in Bennett, Nebraska. And it is my honor to present God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. If in relationships with other people, familiarity breeds contempt, I think we could say regarding ideas, familiarity could make us careless. Familiarity breeds carelessness. Like, for instance... I don't know what the weather was like here in Omaha over the last several days. In Lincoln, uh, the farmers are rejoicing that the things are a bit wetter than they've been for the last several weeks. And I, I was reminded earlier this year that rainbows are marvelous things. There was a huge rainbow that covered the major highway in, uh, outside the Lincoln area. And I was, I almost drove off the road. It was it was a profound thing and something that I have taken for granted because in my mind, growing up in church, I know rainbows stand for something. They mean, they signal the covenant or the promise that God made with all mankind to Noah saying, I will never again destroy all mankind by a flood. I will never flood the earth again. Now, how it breeds carelessness is I keep taking for granted that this storm will stop eventually. I don't deserve for the storm to stop, but it will. And that rainbow is a sign of that. Or carelessness. I think I know the story, so I don't go back and read Genesis 8 and 9. But when I take the time to be less careless and more careful, I realize that wrapped up in that whole account is not only that God promises never to flood the world again, but he also promises that as long as the world endures, there will be springtime and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. Day and night. So every time I wake up in the morning. Indeed, every time I go to my favorite grocer, as Pat would say. To my favorite grocery store and buy whatever it is I want to eat. I should be reminded I'm able to eat this because of God's promise. Not only to never flood the earth again. But there will be provision, generally speaking. Springtime and harvest. Planting and harvest. So I asked you to turn with me to Luke 10. And in Luke 10, we encounter a very familiar portion of scripture. Indeed, if you have almost no Bible experience or knowledge at all, the concept of what's titled in some of our Bibles, at the top of verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan, That concept of the Good Samaritan, even unbelievers use. It is a profoundly familiar concept and idea. And this morning, because it's God's Word and it's where we are in the text, I wanted to walk with you through this very familiar passage, praying that God will help us open our eyes to see and be less careless with a familiar passage and Draw from it profound encouragement and awareness of deep truths that govern our lives. If you had a Bible, if you have a Bible and you're in Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25, follow along please as I read. The word of God says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man. Now, now I'll just break from the text for just a minute. Here we go. This is the master storyteller answering a challenge with such a profound and simple story. Again, that even people who have very scant knowledge of the scriptures are familiar with Jesus' story. He is awesome. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him for dead. So already the Lord has our undivided attention He is challenged by this lawyer. He asks about who is my neighbor. And the Lord, in the opening lines of the story, starts by describing a crime. And he says, this man has been beaten on a road, a very, very, very dangerous road. When it says that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem sits about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho sits about a thousand feet below sea level. It's about a seven mile trek. I've never been to Israel. Many of you have. So y'all can tell me about this. I hear it's like walking down a back alley in Gotham City and it's like seven miles before the next street light. Verse 31. And by chance, a priest, I love how the Lord, the sovereign Lord talks about chance. <laughs> Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, now I'll just pause here for just a second to say that if you're in the crowd of people listening to Jesus, you would realize that Jesus just introduced the good guy, the superhero, the emergency medical workers, the person who should have been like, oh, I'm going to do the right thing by this guy. By chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay. You could hear everybody in the crowd go, what? This guy's supposed to know God's law backward and forward and know that you don't pass a fellow Jew who is in need and just let him go. No, you stop." Swing and a miss for the good team. Verse thirty two. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, pass by on the other side. Uh, okay. Now already the Lord Jesus telling this story is responding to this man, this lawyer, this expert in God's law, and the people who are also experts in God's law and knows what God's require what God requires. Or doing the wrong thing. And everybody in the crowd is stunned. And their shock is going to increase. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I'll just be transparent. We have no idea what's going through the mind of the priest Or the Levite. We don't know if they're late for work, if they're, we have no idea. But all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus, third time's a charm, slows down the story, like an action movie, and actually tells us what's in the head of the bad guy, of the despised guy, the Samaritan. We have no idea what the Levite or the priests were thinking, the good guys. Jesus tells us exactly what the Samaritan is thinking, the despised man. He had compassion, verse 33. And classic good storytelling just slows it down even further. And now we see he didn't just pass by. Notice all the action words that the Lord just keeps hurling into the story. Verse 34, this Samaritan went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him, set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, took care of him. 6. Verse 35. On the next day, he took out two denarius and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Eight things that this man did in response to an adversary in need. And then the Lord Jesus collapses it all together and says to the lawyer who's questioning him, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Again, a profound story. A story that we are familiar with, but just trying to suspend that for a little while, entering into what the crowd was hearing if we hear it through their ears, is a shocking story. This man, well, really, Jesus does this kind of thing throughout his parables often. Gives us three things to pay attention to, or oftentimes three characters. Again, it just sounds like a bad joke. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan go walking into a bar. Or a back alley behind a bar. And oddly enough, it's just a plot twist. The last person you would expect is the person who is the hero of the story. The one who showed or proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And obviously for the crowd of people listening to Jesus, that's shocking. I can go on even better. For the disciples, this is even more shocking. For Luke's readers, this is even more shocking. For Luke, who's writing to his friend Theophilus, a friend of God, so that he would have an orderly account of all that the Lord accomplished among them. The ink hasn 't even dried on chapter nine verse fifty one so if you if you have a Bible there, if you just want to flip back a page so in the section that starts in chapter nine verse fifty one Jesus passes through a certain village of Samaritan people, and they reject him so For the disciples who've been traveling with Jesus, for them to hear Jesus make a Samaritan, the hero of the story, is shocking to them. Notice they want to call down fire on the Samaritan village. That's chapter 9, verse 54. So for the disciples who've been traveling with Jesus, and for us, just the casual Reader of the Gospel of Luke, it's like, what? Jesus uses the unexpected to make his point. The point being not only that there is no person who is in need that we are not to move towards helping. But the point being that we are not to try to wiggle our way out of this obligation. There is no... There is no criteria of people in need that should make us, as it were, pass them by on the other side. Now, if I was to stop here and just kind of spend the next few minutes, just kind of trying to make you feel really good and guilty, oxymoron, for how you may be doing well or maybe failing at being a good Samaritan to others, we may get the point of the parable, we'd miss the point of the passage. Because not only does Jesus tell this lawyer in front of the crowd, you go and do likewise, this is a response to a challenge. I don't know if you picked up on that when I started reading in verse 25. So if you have your Bible in front of you, you just want to skip to verse 25. Again, someone who's an expert in God's law hears the way Jesus has been talking and teaching the crowd that has gathered around him and stands up in their midst and puts Jesus to the test. So this is a, he's questioning Jesus and not in a good faith effort to learn But in an effort, it seems to discredit the Lord Jesus, he put him to the test. And his question is not to be missed. It completely transforms and focuses this whole concept of the Good Samaritan. So verse 25 again, this lawyer, expert in God's law, tested Jesus by saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal Life. Now Jesus doesn't push back and say that's irrelevant. That's a great question. There's no more important question that anyone could ask, whether they mean it sincerely or not. This life is a vapor. This life is like a rainbow that is sure to quickly dissipate. Eternity is forever. And we will be eternally conscious. So what must I do to inherit eternal life or a, or to get to heaven if you want to use common language? Which is funny because again, just for those who are less familiar with the Bible, that seems like a really easy thing. Generally, good people go to heaven, bad people Go to hell. That's the general understanding for a post-Christian society. Even in the church, we're tempted to think this way. The the good of us gets to go to heaven, and the not-so-good of us, we'll see. I think it's ironic that nowhere in Jesus' description of the Samaritan does he call him good. That's something that the Bible editors put as a title, the Good Samaritan. So great question. What's the answer? Jesus says, well, you know, you're the expert in God's word. So verse, 30, verse 26, what is written in the law, the law of God? How do you understand it? How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, Well, if I was to summarize God's requirements. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds to him. Again, you've answered correctly. Like, good answer. So you decided to put me on the test. Showed up and it's like a pop quiz in class. I put you back on the test. How do you read God's law? Now that's a good summation. You've answered correctly. You passed the quiz, Captain Lawyer Boy. And then Jesus says, do this and you will live. That has come to mean so much to me in the last few months. Do this and you will live. If someone wants to inherit eternal life, they must do what the lawyer has responded they must do the lawyer's answer. Did you catch the lawyer's answer? It's related to God and related to fellow human beings. It's a profound answer. When it comes to the Lord, the response, the, the summation of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Every moment, every aspect of your being, all your thoughts, all your loves, all your energies, everything you give, your, give yourself to, everything you pursue. Rest, work, pleasure. It's all in the service of loving the Lord our God. So so the, the people who wrote the Westminster Catechism, larger catechism, question 20, were right when they summarized it as that we need to love the Lord our God perfectly, personally, and perpetually. You see the the personally aspect verse 28 you do this and you will live or verse 27 perfectly with all your heart all your soul all your mind perfectly or perpetually that the wiggle room in verse 29 love your neighbor as yourself so is is there a escape clause I don't know if any of you are lawyers. I don't know anything about law. So I, if I offend you, I deeply apologize. I know when I get cornered, I'm looking for a loophole, a way out. And the lawyer's looking for a good loophole, a way out. So he leaves the whole love God thing alone, and he goes after the neighbor question. That, that's rather profound to me. You're trying to inherit eternal life, and he's looking for the, the little little slide out. He's making massive assumptions that he loves the Lord, his God, perfectly, personally, and perpetually. And he's just kind of looking for the little loophole out in the neighbor clause. Who is my neighbor? This is a profound answer. And it's honestly a bit disturbing that Jesus says, he answered correctly. So, I've sat with families who've lost loved ones, and if that's your situation, I'm very much compassionate towards that. But again, I think some things are easier to hear in a sermon like this, and hearing in a funeral well meaning people talk about at least my loved one is in a better place now when the lawyer himself didn't didn 't take that for granted but what must I do to inherit eternal life and he knew god 's law backward and forward you 've answered correctly, love God perfectly, personally, perpetually, love your neighbor as yourself, do that, and you will live. God's standard is wonderful and perfect and we make all kinds of assumptions because familiarity leads to carelessness. And we're in a profound dilemma, an impossible dilemma. Do this and you will live still hangs over every person and the problem is we haven't. So no matter how old you are today. And the problem is we won't. But as you keep reading the gospel, so one of the things about understanding parables is you pay attention to the characters and the plot of the story and answers. You try not to read too much into the details. But you also look at context. And what's really strange about the context of the Good Samaritan passage here in Luke chapter 10 is somehow people who are not loving the Lord, their God, perfectly, personally, or perpetually have a very different destiny than what we'd expect. Look, just let your eyes just creep back up the page for just a minute. Chapter 10, verse 21. We just notice God's God just bestows His favor, His sovereign favor on undeserving people, people who actually deserve the opposite. Verse 21. In that same hour, the Lord Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, like the lawyer who stands up a few verses later and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Things like verse 22. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, you can know God because of the sovereign will of the Father and the Son. Or consider, just let your eyes keep going back up a little further. Verse 20. The disciples, or 72 of them, have just returned from doing the Lord's command and going to all these cities and preaching the, that the kingdom has come. And as they return, they're geeking out on the fact that demonic spirits are submissive to them. And they're all amped up about it. And they come all bouncing on their feet. Lord, even the spirits are subjected to us. This is awesome. And the Lord says, I, I get it. Like, that's actually pretty awesome. You don't see that every day. I totally get it. It's the supernatural. Rock it. i tell you what, though. Don't rejoice about that so much that you can command demonic spirits. i tell you what, to. Throw a party about. Verse 20. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You have 72 people who do not love the Lord their God perfectly, personally, or perpetually, or their neighbor as themselves, and yet their names are written in heaven. How's that happening? Luke kind of nods at this. Look at the end. I stopped reading the Good Samaritan passage in verse 37. Look, look at the end. Verse 38. Again, another really famous passage. If you've been around church life very much, you're probably familiar with the time that Jesus was at the house of Mary and Martha. So verse 38, he went to a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him her home. These are friends of the Lord Jesus. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. That's right on the heels of the Good Samaritan passage. I don't, I don't know if you understand that. Like, that doesn't belong there. From chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is making his way from the northern end of Palestine to Jerusalem in the southern end. And this little village... Where Mary and Martha live, Bethany is right outside Jerusalem down here. The Good Samaritan parable passage happens way back up here in the north. Luke takes this scene that happens later and plops it right here after the Good Samaritan passage. Why? Here is a lady who is not so busy serving that it's taken away from her time at the lord's feet notice how the lord responds which actually i mean if you just let your imagination and your own experience work on the text you'll see that there's there's a, there's a reason to chuckle like okay it's maybe it's just my imagination because i'm a weird guy i mean have you ever been like ticked off at someone you're supposed to love. This is her sister. there, narrative breeds contempt. And she storms into the living room where Jesus is teaching. And she's talking to Jesus, looking at her sister. Lord, tell my sister to come help me in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sorry. Maybe it's just me. The Lord responds compassionately. But firmly, verse 41, Martha, Martha. I mean, that. that I guess is how I read it, compassionately. You could read it as, Martha, Martha, what you thinking? Like, I mean, if you want to, like, fine, fine. I, I just, I, I, yeah. A soft word turns away wrath, the proverb says. Martha, Martha, maybe a hand on the shoulder. You're anxious and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen. Now, the one time the word good shows up in the passage is in relationship not to a Samaritan, but sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Just putting all things in perspective, there's a way in which those who aren't loving the Lord their God perfectly, personally, or perpetually, have their names written in heaven, are shown the Father's favor, and get to follow the Lord Jesus, get to sit at his feet and joyfully learn from him. A whole new direction in life, a whole new course of life. And again, people will tell you if you're studying parables. You pay attention to the characters, You pay attention to the context right around it. And then you you pay attention to the context of the whole book. And just, just for a second, if you were going to just keep reading in the gospel of Luke, it would probably take you maybe an hour, maybe. And if you get to chapter 18, You hear Jesus tell another parable and something amazing happens. Verse 9, chapter 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Luke, our writer, is pushing back at those who think that by doing all the things well that they are righteous. And then have contempt for others. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the the hero of the culture. And the other a tax collector, the despised of their culture. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. You can just hear him kind of talking real loud and cutting his eyes. the guy next to him, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine having somebody pray for you like this? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, in contrast, standing so far off, laden with guilt and full of fears, as the hymn writer says. Standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to the heavens, but beat his chest saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, again, just familiarity breeds carelessness. We're so used to talking about ourselves as sinners, we don't appreciate that the bare minimum of what it means to be a normal human being is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the bare minimum of what it means to be a normal human being. I didn't say typical. I meant normal. Typical human beings hate each other and despise God. But normal humanity that's running as it's designed to be has a love affair with the Lord God and a neighbor And The tax collector knows he's ruined, knows the implications of that word sinner, and begs God for mercy. The Lord Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, this man went home. That's a really important word, went back to his house, justified, rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's an amazing thing. If you want to earn eternal life or inherit eternal life, you must love the Lord your God Perfectly, personally, perpetually, and your neighbors, yourself do this and you will live. And yet, from the words of the Lord Jesus, who knows that that's the right answer to how to inherit eternal life. The Lord Jesus says, here's a man who understands his absolute wickedness and calls out to God for mercy and goes home. Justified. Righteous in God's eyes. Seen in the eyes of God as someone who has always loved the Lord his God perfectly, perpetually, and personally. Justified. Righteous. And if you ask, how can this be? I'll just say, let's go to one last passage. We're just going, widening out our scope a little bit more as we come to a close. Look at Luke chapter 22. This is the night before the Lord's death. So he's on purpose going to the cross. And they're having supper, dinner. I, I grew up in the South. I really don't know what it's called up here. I, I, I've been here 10 years. I have no idea what to call it. They're eating food somewhere at night. <laughs> right? It's like past the pop or a Coke. Did I just offend somebody? My bad. Verse 19. And he took the bread. This is chapter two, 22, verse 19. The night before the Lord dies on the cross. Before he gives himself to the cross. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My body is going to be broken tomorrow morning and it's broken for you or the next verse verse 20 and likewise he took the cup after they had eaten saying this is the cup sorry this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood so we sang songs about the lord jesus being the lamb of god Here it is now. His blood is going to be poured out and it is for people who have not loved the Lord their God perfectly, personally, or perpetually, or the neighbor as themselves. And it's poured out in such a way that it will establish a new relationship, a new understanding, a new covenant. Now, I'll, I'll just be transparent. The only way in which someone's broken body and spilt out blood can establish, not just for himself, but for other, but for other people, people who are absolutely sinful, establish a new covenant is if that person has in, done what it takes to inherit eternal life. That person had to have loved the Lord his God personally, perfectly, and perpetually, and is obviously loving his neighbors as himself. Perfectly. And what's funny is, the one person in the whole story who doesn't deserve to die is about to die tomorrow morning. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How did it get there? This is my blood poured out for you to establish the new covenant. Rejoice that your heavenly Father has poured out favor on you. Why would he do that? It's the opposite of what I deserve. This is my body broken for you or given for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the righteousness that sinners lack. And because He is perfect and perpetual in His upholding of God's good and right law not only can sinners find rest for their souls by putting our faith in him and his finished work for us but we who are struggling Christians struggling to walk in obedience can find grace can find strength can find help can find mercy because he has done it all would you pray with me Father, we thank you for this time in the text and for the discoveries of the details of your word so that we learn to rejoice and and not let our familiarity with it lead us down the path of carelessness. We thank you that you've exalted your name and your word above all things and that it holds out hope for the most wretched the most disgusting the most unholy thank you for saving even me and we pray that as we finish out this time together of marveling of your grace that assuages our guilt and propels our gratitude we pray that in your mercy we would flourish